Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, this week is one for the books. As a grand jury refused to charge any of the police officers responsible for killing Breonna Taylor with her murder, the president declined to commit to a peaceful transition of power should he lose the November election, and states continued their plans to reopen, even as cases of COVID-19 are starting back up again. The news often feels overwhelming, and overwhelm doesn't generally encourage action. News media may not control what happens in the world, but the way they show it to us has a real impact on how we feel about it and on what we think we can do about it. Laura Flanders, the original host of Counterspin and the former director of the Women's Desk at FAIR, practices a kind of journalism meant to encourage engagement, not just in the stories it tells, but in the people that tell them. The Laura Flanders Show is now moving to a bigger platform. It will be airing on public TV stations around the country. Apropos of that, we'll talk with her about what she hopes the show can achieve. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. Wildfires continue to devastate the West Coast. 3.6 million acres have burned since August 15th in California alone, one of those increasingly commonplace new records, and both the Arctic and Antarctica are exhibiting dramatic ice loss. Given how little time experts say we have to prevent irreversible damage from climate change, this year's election is a crucial one for the future of the planet and climate disruption remains a top priority for many voters. That ought to mean the climate crisis would be a central focus of the presidential debates, the main opportunity for most voters to hear the candidates questioned about their positions on major policy issues. But, as Julie Holler reminds at FAIR.org, if the past is indication, the journalists who moderate those debates won't feel the same sense of urgency. In 2016, not a single question was asked about climate change. Zero questions were asked in 2012 as well. As Fair's Adam Johnson wrote in 2016, in over eight hours of presidential debates spanning four years, there were only four utterances of the term climate change on the most important political stage, all by Hillary Clinton, all in passing, all entirely unsolicited. Prior to this election season's Democratic primary debates, environmental activists pressed the DNC to hold a single-issue debate on the climate crisis. DNC Chair Tom Perez rebuffed them, claiming he had the utmost confidence that the subject would be discussed in the debates early and often. But the moderators failed miserably to center climate, devoting more questions to the utterly useless topic of electability than to, you know, galloping environmental devastation. Holler noted last November that of the climate questions moderators did ask, many focused on the idea that major action on climate disruption, that's to say action commensurate with the threat, is not realistic, or that it threatens people's freedoms to do things like drive gas-guzzling cars or eat meat. Senator Bernie Sanders had highlighted climate in weeks leading up to the debates, but he didn't get a single unique question on it. The only other candidates in the debates who got higher than a B-plus from Greenpeace for their climate plans, Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker, each got one unique question. Since the media hosts had ruled that follow-ups or handoff prompts were limited to 30 or 45 seconds, 
That meant that the candidates with the most ambitious climate plans were given criminally little time to explain them. The recent media-sponsored town halls with Donald Trump and Joe Biden haven't inspired much hope. In CNN's September 17th town hall with Biden, three participants were selected to ask him questions about the environment. Two of them pushed Biden to endorse anti-environmental positions, one in favor of fracking and one against, quote, over-regulation of farms via climate policies. Both of those voices selected to represent the public are actually very much out of step with public opinion. Americans oppose fracking by a large majority, and majorities also believe the government is doing too little to protect the environment, not too much. In ABC's town hall with Trump September 15th, Zero questions were asked about climate. And indeed, as Holler went to press with her post, Fox News's Chris Wallace, the moderator for the first debate to be held September 29th in Cleveland, announced the topics he intends to cover, and climate is not one of them. The presidential and vice presidential debates ought to give voters a chance to see the candidates attempt to explain and defend their positions on the most important issues of the day. The coronavirus, healthcare, and the economy will shortly be prominent as they should be. But the climate crisis is an economic, healthcare, and human rights issue of inestimable import. And voters know it, with poll after poll showing it among their top concerns. Media gatekeepers who sideline the issue in debates might be pleasing corporate sponsors. They are outright failing the public. On FAIR.org, you can find contact information for the moderators of the upcoming debates, should you wish to contact them and tell them to make the climate crisis a key focus. Finally, media's war games approach to the election is dumb for many reasons, one of which is it seems to make reporters misplace fundamental values. Hence the website Axios's headline description of statehood for Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. as, quote, Democrats' Armageddon option. Close quote, because the voters it would enfranchise are likely to vote Democratic. Except when you take off the simplistic zero-sum beltway goggles, there is, as Judd Legum of Popular Information noted on Twitter, quote, no reason why millions of taxpaying Americans, many of whom are people of color, should be denied representation in Congress, close quote. So yeah, Armageddon makes a bold headline, but really, wouldn't democracy be the hotter take? You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the media watch group FAIR. It doesn't matter how many channels you have. If you sift through them, you will find lamentably little journalism that isn't mainly stale frameworks and rhetoric turning round on itself. News is press releases from the powerful. Analysis is white men espousing variants on the status quo. At a historical moment demanding bold change, corporate news media serve as blinders, returning us again and again to the trodden path. That insularity, that top-downism, is not a quality of journalism itself, of course, but only as it's overwhelmingly practiced in the media we mainly see. Seek out new media, and you may also find a new way of doing journalism. Different sources, different stories, different ideas, and most fundamentally, a different relationship to power and to change. It's almost enough to make you want to get out of bed in the morning. That's what we're going to talk about now with journalist Laura Flanders. 
Longtime listeners will know Laura as the original host and producer of Counterspin. We co-hosted for many years. She now hosts The Laura Flanders Show, which as of very recently has expanded its reach and will be airing on PBS stations from Arizona to Vermont. She joins us now by phone from Sullivan County, New York. Welcome back to Counterspin, Laura Flanders. Oh, thank you, Janine. Yes, get out of bed in the morning. We can do this. You know, we need all the help we can to do it, though, and that includes new visions. So let's start right there. I mean, the Laura Flanders show itself is not new, but it is coming to a new audience, for which we say congratulations. How do you talk about the vision for the show? What is it that you set out to do each week? Well, we say it's a TV and radio program where the people who say it can't be done take a backseat to the people who are doing it, from Jim Hightower, with his permission, I might say. And I think that's a about sums it up. We are, some people say, you know, the solutions of tomorrow today. Basically, what we're saying is the reality that we live in. The reality that we live in today is not immutable. It is the product of choices, of power dynamics, of um, motivations of certain sectors over others, a set of priorities that we can shift, and not just in some abstract, pie-in-the-sky theoretical thinking, but Actually, right here, right now, we try as much as possible to talk about and to report on examples of shifting power in the worlds of arts, politics, and economics. So whether that's land trusts or worker-owned co-ops or community wealth building in cities like Preston in the UK or even right here in Sullivan County, it's really trying to say, look, you, there may be experts in your neighborhood that you can team up with and make a real difference. Not to say we don't, you know, don't need government power, too. We do. I sometimes say we can do bottom-up change about as far as our bottom, and then we need help from government. But we try to sort of hit that sweet spot of inspiring people to make change and also to realize what more change needs to be made. Well, we literally have pundits arguing about whether something is possible that is actually happening somewhere else. And it can be so frustrating, which is why I love where the people who say it can't be done take a backseat to the people who are doing it. But it's not just a what, of course, it's a who. Media don't just tell us what to think, they tell us who's worth listening to, who's an expert. And regular, quote unquote, people are generally not considered experts, including on their own lives. They may get to say, I'm poor, or we want police to stop harming our community, but they aren't usually asked for more than a soundbite on their ideas about how to change things. They don't lead the piece. And that's something else that's different is who, who are the voices in the show? Well, you know, I learned so much of what I do and how I think from you all and our, our time at FAIR together. And I think even back then we used to say, Look, the corporate media is about directing public eyeballs and ears to corporations, to advertisers. And our independent media is about introducing people to each other. Our democracy and the way we cover it tends to cast our glance always upward. Like, who's at the top of the ticket? Where is the powerful and what are they doing? As opposed to laterally towards one another. It's like, how do we together make change? And where are some examples of exactly that? So that is exactly what we try to do on the show. It's to give people some sense of how change happens, you know, what goes into the pudding and what people can do to change that. I think my entire job, Janine, frankly, is introducing people to each other. And that's what we try to do on the show. 
Well, just to look at the guest list for the show on COVID in a rural community, you've got an assemblywoman, a labor organizer, a cheese worker and her daughter, a public health director, a school lunch manager, musicians. I mean, beyond the the new content that they bring, it says something to put these people on the same plane as one another, as it were, instead of what we usually see, which is power means the expert who's in studio, and those outside of power, well, they're the colorful background or the soundbite or the B-roll. You know, that's a great example. I love this COVID in the country episode. You know, I'm a journalist, as you are, and when COVID hit, and, you know, my partner got COVID, we'd moved out of the city. We settled down in this little country cabin I've had for 30 years, but never thought of living in full time. And after about a month, I was like, uh-huh, okay, now what? You know, what's happening right around here? And that was when I reached out to a friend of mine who works in community radio at WJFF here at Jeffersonville. It used to be hydropowered community radio in the Southwest Catskills. And she knew lots of folks, had some idea what was going on. We teamed up together. I figured out I could do reporting with an iPhone on a very long selfie stick and a face mask. And we went out to talk to people about what the heck was going on, because I looked around and realized, even though the national news, the, the network news every night was bringing me the news from Washington and New York, mostly a little bit of L.A. occasionally, what we were hearing was that rural America wasn't really feeling this pandemic. It was an urban thing. Not true. This little tiny county, which is just 100 miles out of New York, but is the sixth most rural congressional district in the country, the incidence rate, the number of cases per head of population, was actually higher than Manhattan. So I was like, well, we were all trying to figure out why that was. And when you looked at the geographic distribution of COVID positivity, it concentrated in the towns that had the largest Latinx population, the populations that were working in poultry plants and meat packers and dairies and, and you name it. So it was there that we focused. And sure enough, as soon as we started doing that, we found people at the Rural and Migrant Ministry who were working their hearts off to get masks to workers and information to workers. And along with the information about health, the information about signing onto the census, it really invalidated valuable kind of organizing that paid off quickly. The rates started coming down and really educated the people who lived here about how they, just like the big cities, were dependent on a very precarious, underpaid pool of fairly exploited labor, many of them undocumented, many of them female. I think it was a wake-up call for the people of Sullivan County. But there's one other little bit of the story, Janine, which you would like, which is that as I did this work, I discovered, as if I didn't know it before, just how important local media can be. It was the local radio station that was reporting these local town hall meetings that were being recorded on Facebook Live by a little guy in the town hall who was holding up his iPhone to the health commissioner as she spoke every week. It was a local newspaper, in this case the River Reporters, the Sullivan County Democrats, who were reporting on what was happening. If people here had relied on the news from New York City, um, they would never have known what was going on, and they wouldn't have known what to do to look after one another. And then the final little coda for the story is when we talk about an ecosystem, we put together this episode, and we send out a press release to the local press, and who should respond saying she wants to write about the episode, but a woman, Isabel Braverman, who had interned for me when we started the show years ago. She worked with Jeff Cohen at the Park Center for Independent Media and Ithaca College. And 
I just thought, okay, there you have it. There's our ecosystem in a nutshell. Independent media makers, independent media outlets, print and radio and TV coming together to create some echo effect for an important story that was being missed by how many thousands of well-paid media outlets that are just 100 miles away. Well, another thing that sets the show apart that you touched on earlier is its international scope. You know, we, we are one world, but corporate media hide that fact like it's their job, you know, and their world looks kind of like the board in a game of risk, you know. But on your show, it's not like, ooh, field trip to Europe, you know. It's, it's just that if you're going to tell a story on worker cooperatives, well, that could be a story from upstate New York, or it could be a story from Spain. You're, you're just choosing to ignore some kinds of map lines. And, and does that, too, come from a particular approach to journalism? Well, the Spain story arose from the fact that I thought, hmm, where could we tell a story? You know, what, one thing we often do in the U.S. commercial media and the corporate media is divide our economic stories from our political stories. So you have the economy over here, and if you have some human interest, cutesy story about a co-op, it's on page, you know, B39. But the political story is some other page, and the two never meet. And activism often splits itself in that way, too, that you have people working on the economy and people working on politics. And I, I was thinking about the coming election of 2020 and thinking, hmm, a lot of our progressive folks are going to be focusing on the electoral. But what about this economic development story that we need to maintain you know, a drumbeat on because the economy doesn't go away? And gosh, it certainly hasn't gone away, away as an issue this year. Where could we look at the relationship of cooperative economics and solidarity economics as a way of resisting dictatorship, authoritarian government, far-right autocracy. You know, I didn't think it was, let's say, inappropriate or irrelevant mm -hmm. to look at that question as we approach 2020. And so Spain was the obvious example because it was there that the world's largest workaround co-ops grew up as a way for the of occupied region of the Basque country to survive under Europe's longest dictatorship, the Franco dictatorship that followed the Spanish Civil War. So they were a great model of how solidarity economics and cooperation helped communities survive that leadership in, in Madrid, in the capital city, had no interest in, in employing and giving health care to and caring for any of it. Um, it seems sort of strangely relevant, Janine, to our experience here in the U.S., and I was really lucky to be able to do that story with the help of the Democracy Collaborative in, in Washington and the Beneficial State Bank, who helped me go on a delegation. I guess what I want to underscore is, just as on the story about COVID in a rural county, you could have told the story with some politicians, local politicians, albeit, you know, and an epidemiologist and, you know, put some farm workers in the background, you know, and you could have, on the worker cooperative story, said, oh, yeah, that's a very interesting story, but that's Spain, you know, why would I tell that to a U.S. audience? It, it seems to me that you're overwriting some of the rules of quote-unquote traditional or, or corporate journalism when you do things like that, when you elevate sources that aren't generally elevated and when you compare internationally, you know, as though that were a relevant thing to do. Yeah, well, it goes back to that introducing people to each other thing. I mean, you're completely right. I think we are given news from abroad with a very clear emphasis on this is foreign, no relevance to you, you know, when in fact so many of these stories are examples of 
places and people not unlike ourselves doing things that we could well do likewise if we just got to hear about them we have another episode coming up from preston in the uk one of the deindustrialized cities of the industrial revolution textile world that after many years of trying to you know tempt big corporations to come and give them a few jobs in exchange for paying no taxes for a long time and then you know, shuttling profits far away to, in this case, London or corporate headquarters elsewhere. Uh, local government said, enough of that. What if we kept our resources, such as they are, right here and used our government money, our city money, to invest in local businesses, local contractors, procure locally? And sure, we may not be the wealthiest people in the world, but we can support ourselves and support one another if we're not busily trying to tempt Walmart in. And that's exactly what they did. And again, a model that is is relevant, is interesting. They speak English. I mean, this is this does not have to be a foreign story. And I, I also think, you know, when you talk about who gets to be an expert, it is always true, almost always true. Poor people, women of color, women, people of color, immigrants, people who don't speak English. In the U.S. corporate media, they only ever get to be like the color, you know, what, what you used to say at fair about being, you know, wildlife footage with your fist in the air. Women especially, I think, we get to have experiences. Oh, my uterus hurts, you know, but we don't get to have expertise. Well, I actually am, you know, a gynecologist with expertise. With I know what I'm talking about. Or better than that, I'm a Supreme Court justice. You know what I mean? It, it's different who gets to be an expert and i think that's one of the fundamental things we try to shift on our program well i've asked you this before what's so funny about peace love and solutions journalism you know by which <laughs> i don't mean carrying water for the latest bill gates scheme but just what we're talking about forward-looking journalism that takes human rights and justice as actual imperatives as opposed to value-neutral things that some people disagree about. Now, to some people, that might just sound like journalism, but somehow it has a reputation as being soft or uncritical or else not objective, too advocatory or something. Why can't we say solutions journalism without making people giggle somehow? It's an experiment, I will say. I mean, you've said it many times on this program, and huge props to you for maintaining Counterspin. It's one of my go-to podcasts every week. You regularly point out that we don't have a free market of choice in our media when it comes to what show would we prefer to watch, because there often isn't anybody in the you know DEFG section of the, the choice spectrum. This is an experiment, our program. We are also told people like drama. They like the cat fight. They like partisan politics. We're offering none of that. Will people watch? Well, we'll find out. I think there has never been a better climate for programming that's forward-looking, not altogether partisan, really about alternative models. I mean, we've just lived through, we are living through, the greatest economic depression in our lifetime. We've got, you know, 30 to 40 percent of all the jobs that have been lost since COVID unlikely to return. We have one in four restaurants that are closed now, probably going to stay closed, and 14 million kids in food insecure households, which is three times as many as we had in 2008. We're facing a crisis. We're on a precipice. Are we about to rebuild our economy as just Amazon land with massive amounts of hedge fund capital and vulture capital swooping in and buying up bankrupt and hard up small businesses? Or are we going to find models, maybe even in other countries, of investing locally, preserving our some kind of 
semblance of democracy at the local level, at the economic level, and then begin a conversation about how we could reprioritize people versus profits in our society. If we can't find an audience for programming that talks about that in this moment, I'll hang up my spurs. You know, I probably won't. I keep trying. But, you know, this is the moment to give this particular exercise a try. Is it solutions? I'm not sure. I think it's smart thinking. I think we're putting the public back into public affairs. We're not serving up solutions necessarily, but we are serving up ways to think about what new questions we need to raise and to remind ourselves that we're constantly making choices that bring us to where we are now. And I think it was Einstein that said, you know, we can't get ourselves out of the crisis with the same kind of thinking that got us into it. We're on the same page. I love what you do, Janine. And, you know, we'll just keep at it. I think that the one thing can be said about our generation is we don't stop. And I refuse to stop. So now we are going from being on satellite television, free speech TV and link TV to being on public television stations all across the country and on YouTube. So people can still find us on YouTube and we have a podcast and a radio show playing on many of the same stations that carry Counterspin. But if you want to see the premiere every week, you go to the PBS World Channel and we premiere every Sunday, 11.30 a.m. Send a message that you appreciate this programming we are going to need you to. And if your station's, station's not so far playing our show, and you can find out from the little tracker on our website, ask them to. We need you. We don't have the well-paid PR and promotions outfit that, I don't know, Wall Street Week has. You say this launch on PBS is at this point an experiment, but it, it didn't just happen. There was a lot of work there. Are there particular barriers to getting that broader platform that independent projects face? It is almost insurmountable, Janine. And if it hadn't been for a lot of philanthropic support to make this leap, we would never have done it. You know, the the dirty little secret of public television is that apart from a handful of programs, and I mean fewer than a handful, basically two thumbs worth, all of the content that you see on your local public television station, you've not only paid for through your taxes, but also probably through philanthropy because it's independently produced, independently funded, and independently distributed at a cost to the maker, which is to say a little outfit like mine. So it's not an ecosystem that is easy to penetrate, but it is one that I think needs fresh content. And if we're going to keep our public television system at all, in any shape at all, we need to watch it. We need to support it. We need to bring it some fresh programming. And maybe PBS World, which is also streaming online, could be some sort of future lifeboat for the system. Uh, It's getting a younger audience, more diverse audience, but they have no money for publicity. So we've talked about this before. There needs to be way more public investment, which is to say government investment in a non-commercial public television system. That would make it a whole lot easier for people like me to get on. But in the meantime, we do it by hook or by crook. And with a whole lot of contributions, we get nothing back, not a penny, not one. All right, then. We've been speaking with Laura Flanders. You can learn more about The Laura Flanders Show, including whether you can watch it on your local PBS station on the site, lauraflanders.org. Congratulations again, Laura, and thanks for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janina. Thanks for being there all the way. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. 
The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.